Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's event occurred in 1888. But what else happened that year? Well, on January the 13th, the National Geographic Society was founded in Washington, D.C. On January the 26th, the Lawn Tennis Association is founded in England. March the 25th saw the opening of an International Congress for Women's Rights organised by Susan B. Anthony in Washington, D.C., leading to the formation of the International Council for Women, a key event in the international women's movement. On June the 29th, Handel's Israel in Egypt is recorded onto a wax cylinder at the Crystal Palace in London, the earliest known recording of classical music. On July the 2nd to the 27th, about 200 London match girls strike, mainly teenage girls, following the dismissal of three colleagues from the Bryant and May match factory precipitated by an article on their working conditions published on the 23rd of June by campaigning journalist Annie Besant. August the 7th, the body of London prostitute Martha Tabram is found, the possible victim of Jack the Ripper. But on August the 31st, the mutilated body of London prostitute Marianne Nichols is found. She is considered the first victim of Jack the Ripper. On September the 8th, the mutilated body of London prostitute Annie Chapman is found, the second victim. On the 27th of September, the Dear Boss letter signed Jack the Ripper, the first time the name is used, is received by the London Central News Agency. And this is what it says. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I've laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and I want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my... Fun little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with 
but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. <laughs> the next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers, just for the jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. <laughs> But we're concerned with an event that happened on Wednesday the 21st of November, when a large crowd of people came to look on with interest as the remains of a boat were exposed as the water had been let out of the Bathurst Basin. They also saw the extraordinary appearance of the Robinson's office, whose scorched and blackened front showed how narrowly the building had escaped utter destruction. All this was the aftermath of a huge explosion. Also visible was the destruction to the west front of the Bristol General Hospital, where glaziers were busy at work replacing the shattered casements. In the morning, work had started under the supervision of the docks engineer, Mr C.J. Ward Goodleston, with a plan of removing the hull of the United from its present position on the west side of the basin to a place on the southern side, where it wouldn't interfere with the dock traffic. Several barges employed in connection with the river improvement works were brought in to help, and the steam crane on one of them proved very useful in hoisting out the rubbish, which the hold of the catch was filled with. The salvage which was recovered consisted of a portion of the equipment of the vessel, barrels and staves, which together with a quantity of fragments from the craft were picked up and deposited in a couple of barges lying alongside. Word of the Week And now for this week's Word of the Week, I give you... Ketch, which is a two-masted sailboat whose mainmast is taller than the mizzenmast or aftmast, generally in a 40-foot or bigger boat. The name Ketch is derived from catch. Two powerful manual pumps were set to work and the water in the hull was pumped out. Then, the gaping holes in the sides of the catch both forward and aft, were covered with sailcloth, so that when the water was reinstated into the basin, she might float. When the hold of the United had been thoroughly cleared, the full effects of the explosion became apparent. The ill-fated craft had been burnt right down to the edge of the deck, at the starboard side, aft. And close to the cabin it was noticed that the timbers had been blown right out indicating that this was the spot where the first explosion happened. The west wall of the basin showed extensive traces of the fire damage. For a distance of 160 feet, it was calcined, 
and all of it had to be removed and the wharf wall resurfaced. The Barber Junction Railway Bridge that was also damaged by the fire so badly that traffic had to be stopped. One line of rails soon became available for traffic, but on the second line, the rails had been so bent and twisted that they were totally useless. It was said that the girders were sent to the Great Western Works at Swindon to see if they could be repaired or substituted for new ones. The foot and carriageway was so badly damaged that it was felt necessary to close it, and the upper portion of the inner lock gates held marks of the fiery ordeal to which they were subjected. Luckily, there wasn't much damage, as the gates had only been renewed 12 months before. At the hospital, the repair to the broken glass was well underway, and the glass was being supplied by Cashmore. The work in the Guthrie Ladies' Riddle and Eaton wards were finished in a day, and again occupied by the patients who were so hastily removed the previous day. It was estimated that between 700 and 1,000 panes of glass were broken, and the expense of the repairs was calculated to be about £200. The sole survivor of the United, the ship that exploded, was Edward Menier, whose leg was broken. He said that at the time of the catastrophe he was on deck, the captain, the mate and the boy had been below, The coroner opened an inquiry at the Bedminster Police Station regarding the deaths of the three victims of the disaster. Henry Cartwright, the captain, Joseph Cartwright, his mate, as well as the captain's brother, and Albert Drelude, the cabin boy, who was nicknamed Toby. The bodies were lying in the mortuary and they presented a sickening spectacle, each being charred and disfigured, especially that of the mate. At the inquiry, Mr Parr of the firm Osborne Ward Vassals and Parr attended on behalf of the owner of the vessel, Mr John Whitley of Jersey. The coroner, having sworn the jury, said the men lost their lives as the jury would be aware in the terrible explosion which took place on the previous day in the Bathurst Basin on board a vessel laden with naphtha. Now, naphtha is produced from natural gas condensates, petroleum distillates, and the distillation of coal tar and peat. It's a flammable liquid and is used to dilute heavy oil to help move it through pipelines, to make high-octane gas, and to make lighter fluid, and even to clean metal. In that whole description, the important word in this story is flammable. The coroner said that it would be necessary to have a full inquiry into the cause of death as to the rates regulating the loading of vessels with naphtha, as well as the importation and exportation of the oil, and particularly as to its transit from one place to another. Mr Parr said he represented the owner of the ship and was anxious to render all possible assistance in the investigation. Mr Henry Albert Butt of the firm of Baker and Butt Shipbrokers in Queen Square, was the first witness. He said the vessel belonged to Mr John Whiteley of Jersey. She was a catch, or two-masted vessel, and arrived in port seven or eight days previously. The crew was made up of Henry Cartwright, who was the captain, Joseph Cartwright the mate, and there's a man named Menier, now in hospital, and a boy 
Trilude. The captain was about 82 years of age, the mate about 45, and the boy only 16. The vessel had offloaded its cargo of buckwheat and was again filled with petroleum spirit. And now, get your walking boots on and your blister patches ready, because we're off on our great big stroll. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. And today, we visited Pusey, which is a large village and civil parish at the centre of the Vale of Pusey in Wiltshire, about six miles south of Marlborough and 71 miles west of London. A prominent statue of King Alfred the Great, the former Anglo-Saxon King of Wessex, and a local landowner, stands in the middle of the village quite prominently. Although the village's connection with King Alfred goes back to the 9th century, the statue was not erected until 1913. It was put in place to commemorate the coronation of King George V in 1911. Alfred was crowned the King of Wessex in 870 AD, and he owned much of the land around Pusey. He defended the Kingdom of Wessex from Viking raids, and in 878, he defeated the Danes in the Battle of Ethandun near Westbury. Today, he is remembered in Pusey not only by the statue, but also one of the carnival events, the traditional feast tea. The feast tea is a celebration for all village pensioners, and takes the form of a tea with entertainment. In 1898, Pusey Carnival was first held, a tradition that flourishes today, with a fortnight of events, including the feast, culminating in an illuminated procession in mid to late September. After Pusey, our stroll took us by the Wooden River's Lock, and we came across a fellow called David who lives nearby. Here's what he has to say about the area. Hi, I'm David. I live at Wooden Rivers. I live in the old lockkeeper's cottage and I voluntarily come out now and again to help people go through the locks who haven't done them before. It's a really, really lovely place. It's also the place where David Essex filmed a series called The River, although it's on a canal, which was very popular apparently. Um, we have a few odd, odd uh, exciting bits of people slipping off their boats and falling in, or we had one lady chop the top off her thumb, which was not so nice, but we got the paramedics out and that was all sorted. So it is a, it's an exciting thing and it's a lovely thing to go on the canal boats. It really is an exciting holiday. Remember, we're doing this massive walk to raise money for Suicide Prevention Bristol in memory of Sarah, a listener and friend who passed away in March. If you want to show some support and make a donation to this worthy cause, then just point your cursor to www.justgiving.com, type in Backtracker and you should find our page. But for now, we've got some more walking to do. But join us next week when we talk to some people who keep the canals lovely for the rest of us.
During the inquest, the coroner questioned Mr Butt of the shipbrokers. Is not that naphtha? It is. It's benzolin. It's marked in the barrels. It was at this point that Mr Butt said there were 310 barrels, and they were labelled naphtha, but there was the word benzolin marked on the casks. Is it the usual thing to load vessels with the naphtha in the harbour? Well, no, I think this is about the first case. We've loaded paraffin. Yes, but that is not so inflammable. The oil is not stored in Bristol, is it? No. You recognise the three bodies in the mortuary? Yes. Was any person present during the loading of the cargo? I don't know. There's PC Webber, PC Bellringer, 51B. He was watching the vessel. And my object in asking is to ascertain whether the hull of the casks were perfectly sound. Next, it was the turn of PC Webber from the River Police to be interviewed. And he appeared with his right arm in a sling. He said the River Police watched the vessel during the whole of the time. The loading began on Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. He didn't see any leakage of the casks. An agent had been present on behalf of Messrs Colthart and Harding. He said the loading was finished on Tuesday and the hatches were put on, but were not battered down. He told the inquest how he had had some conversation with the captain about the weather but no reference was made to the dangerous nature of the cargo, nor to smoking. PC Webber mentioned how the boy, Toby, had come up from below deck and said, That stuff is getting that strong that I can hardly stay down there. To which PC Webber replied, You will get your fill before you get to your destination. The explosion took place about half past 11. The mate had been down below for about 20 minutes and the captain was standing on the forequarter, leaning on the rail. The boy had been forward about 10 minutes in the forecastle where he was playing a concertina. Many air, the survivor was in a stooping position on the scuttle hatch. I suppose he was seen in the water and rescued immediately. PC Webber said no. When the explosion occurred, he had his back to the vessel and turned around, but started running towards the bridge. When he had run about six feet, a piece of timber fell against him and knocked him to the ground. He got up again, and seeing a man struggling in the water, he ran alongside the derby, shouting, See that man on the other side? Pick him up! Before anything could be done, Menier had already taken hold of the rail, and he was assisted onto the vessel. PC Webber then went towards the burning ketch to see if he could clear the forecastle. He only had the use of one arm, and he couldn't do it. The heat was also so very, very intense that he had to run back. Mr Parr continued his questioning on behalf of the owner of the vessel. Was there any fire on board the Vessel 7? None whatsoever. You also said the captain knew the rules. Yes, he was cautioned about them. Are there any printed rules? Yes, from the dock office. While you were there, was everything done to comply with the regulations? Yes, every precaution was taken while we were lading. Is it usual to load such a cargo here? This is the first case during my past 17 years. It was not loaded in the basin? In the Welsh bank. 
they would not load in the basin. Sergeant Greenslade of the River Police said he had visited men who were watching the vessel and saw the loading in progress from time to time. The barrels all seemed to be perfect. He had never seen a whole cargo put on board before. He had seen a few casks taken on a ship, and in cases of that sort, they were placed on deck. The fire was put out just before two o'clock, but by that time, the United had already sunk, and they had to pump out the water so that they could recover the bodies. Between half past three and four o'clock, they were able to get on board the wreck, and the bodies were discovered at about four. Sergeant Greenslade recalled that he found the mate in the place where the cabin was, and he was lying with his face forward. The captain seemed to have come down the companion stairs as if walking aft. As they were clearing away the wreck, the body of the boy was found floating among the timber. Did he have the concertina? He had nothing in his hand, and I did not see it at all. The ketch sank in a very few minutes. I had no conversation with the captain as to the rules. I did remark that it must be very disagreeable not to have any lights, and the captain replied that he knew all about it. They would use lights when they got outside the port. Was any fire found? Some matches were found in their clothing, but no pipes. The inquest was adjourned until the following Tuesday, and during that time, a report was circulated in the city that Edwin Menier, the only surviving member of the crew, had succumbed to his injuries. But simple inquiries at the General Hospital proved that wrong. And Menier's brief statement confirmed everyone else's account of the events. He went on to say that he was on deck near the hold, and the deceased captain, mate and boy were below, the boy playing a concertina. Then there was a tremendous explosion, which blew Menier high into the air, and when he fell into the water, he swam to another vessel, the crew of which helped him out. That was when he realised his right leg was fractured. The flammable contents of the United flowed about 30 feet beyond Guinea Street Bridge, the flames reaching an immense height, but the spirit was eventually contained by booms, avoiding further damage to nearby property. A thorough inquiry into the explosion was carried out for the Home Office, and extensive inquiries concluded that Colthurst and Harding had hired an unsuitable vessel. The report stated that the hold of the ketch, despite being closed by inch-thick wooden bulkheads, was not airtight. The cabin and the forecastle each contained a stove or fireplace. The cargo was a variety of naphtha, more commonly known in this country as benzoline, an exceedingly light, volatile liquid which gives off inflammable vapours at ordinary temperatures. All were aware of the dangerous nature of the cargo, but the restrictions of no lights or fires close to the vessel could hardly be adhered to once the ship was at sea. The captain, who had never carried such a cargo or the mate, were blamed for the accident. 
probably caused by one of them deciding to light his pipe. The funeral of Captain Henry Cartwright, aged 32, his brother and mate, Joseph Cartwright, aged 45, both from Jersey, and Albert Dresland, nicknamed Toby, aged 17, were all buried on Saturday the 24th of November, 1888, at Arnas Vale Cemetery in Bristol. A large crowd of people gathered around Bedminster Police Station as the bodies were still lying in the mortuary there. The close-knit shipping community, especially, was hit by tremendous grief, which they freely exhibited, including the captains of local vessels using the port and anyone who had anything to do with the ill-fated vessel. Several captains of vessels using the port attended the funeral, at least nine of these came from Cardiff. The funeral cortege consisted of two hearses and three mourning coaches, which left the mortuary in Bedminster at half past three. They witnessed the departure of the mournful procession with deep interest. Many followed it the whole way to Arnesfell Cemetery, where they paid their last tribute to the memory of the deceased as the three coffins were lowered into the grave. A donation list was opened at the offices of Baker and Butt, shipbrokers of Queen Square, and local agents of the United, on behalf of the widow and child of the captain, and the widowed mother of Joseph Cartwright, as Joseph was her main carer, as well as the widowed mother of the lad, Toby Dresland. To make the scene more poignant, the widow of the captain was heavily pregnant, and the birth of her baby was imminent. In the Bristol Mercury of November 22nd, 1888, a letter was published about the staff of the nearby hospital. To the editor of the Bristol Mercury, Sirs, as I visited the General Hospital yesterday, shortly after the explosion which occurred in Bathurst Basin, I think it is due to the house surgeon, Dr Newnham, and the matron, Miss Ban, as well as the whole staff of the hospital, to bear witness to the efficient manner in which they had dealt with the sudden emergency which had arisen. So far as I could learn, none of the patients had sustained serious injury, and it is hoped that the shock will not prove in any case to have left injurious results. The public will, I think, feel that this alarming incident will give them additional confidence in the staff of the hospital who have shown themselves not only able to deal with the ordinary course of hospital work, but to meet, with self-possession and resource, a sudden emergency. Much credit is due to the police authorities for their prompt dealing with the whole matter, both as regards the precautions against the spread of the fire and the maintenance of order amongst a somewhat excited crowd. I should like also to notice the valuable services rendered by the fire brigade connected with my own firm, who were early in the field, and I believe contributed their full share to the work. We ought not to forget to recognise the protecting care of divine providence in preserving many of us from serious loss. Had the wind been in a different direction, the destruction of property 
would probably have been very great, accompanied possibly with the loss of life, in addition to that which, as we all deplore, occurred in the naphtha vessel. So what happened to Bathurst Basin afterwards? Well, the lock of the new cut was blocked at the beginning of World War II to ensure that in case of damage by bombing, the waters of the floating harbour could not drain into the river. It was then shut permanently in 1952. The basin is now home for Cabot Cruising Club, who owned the light vessel, John Sebastian which was commissioned in 1886. It was acquired by the club in 1954 and opened as its headquarters a few years later in 1959. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 17th of July, when Punch magazine was first published in 1841. Founded by Mark Lemon and Henry Mayhew, among others, it aimed to combine humour with political comment. Its name, that has been associated with the famous puppet show character, is said to have been originally inspired by a punning comment that a good satirical magazine, like Good Punch, needs lemon. Also on the 17th of July in 1959, US jazz singer Billie Holiday passed away. On the 19th of July in 1970, the SS Great Britain returned to her original berth in Bristol City Docks with Prince Philip on board. This was the last leg of the journey from the Falkland Islands. On the 20th of July in 1944, a failed attempt was made on the life of Adolf Hitler when a bomb was placed in a briefcase and left at a meeting. And lastly, on the 23rd of July in 1903, the Ford Motor Company sold its first car, a two-cylinder Model A. And now I'd like to thank those whose vocal talents make me look good. They include John Locke, Henry Arnold and Steve Shepard from Bradley Stoke Radio, Colin Ball and Molly Jeffries from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Harry Thomas, Tony Allen and the Spy Hard podcast. Thank you, one and all. And just before I go, I'd like to tell you that I'm having a couple of weeks off from the podcast, spend some time over the summer holidays with my family. But don't worry... I'll still be working on new stories just for you. See you in a few weeks. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well... Let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. 
or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.